The Minnesota Deer Hunters Association is your conservation organization. The mission is to protect the future of wild deer and deer hunting through habitat, education, advocacy, and legislation. Since 1985, MDHA has restored and or acquired and donated over 75,000 acres of public lands, sent over 15,000 youth through summer camps for hunter education and firearm safety, and represented your voice at the Capitol on hunting and conservation issues. MDHA's Hides for Habitat program recycles your harvested deer hide into quality habitat around Minnesota. To date, MDHA has collected over 1 million donated deer hides, raising over $5.9 million to preserve, enhance, and restore your public lands. To find Find an orange hide drop box near you or join your local chapter, visit mndeerhunters.com and join MDHA in protecting the future of deer and deer hunting in Minnesota. As hunters and conservationists, it's our responsibility to give back to the landscape we rely on. There's no better way to do that than join and support the Minnesota Deer Hunters Association. Visit mndeerhunters.com today. This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Federal Ammunition. Onyx Hunt, the Minnesota Deer Hunters Association, Waltons, Nutrisource Pet Foods, Aluma Trailers, and by North Dakota Tourism. My guest today is Trevor Geiger. Trevor and his wife, Carissa, are passionate upland bird hunters and do-it-yourself dog trainers that just returned from their honeymoon. They didn't sip cocktails on a sunny beach somewhere down south. No, no, no. They took a road trip together from Wisconsin to Idaho with their dogs to hunt for upland birds. We'll find out how their honeymoon unfolded, if they're still happily married, and what this young couple has learned about birds, dogs, and life. Plus, I'll share a scary accident that just happened to me last week on the ice. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'll be your host on what we believe to be a roughly one-hour tour through bird hunting country. Brandon Morton, once again, is our producer. Good morning, Brandon. Good morning, Travis. Trevor Geiger is our guest today, coming to us from Wisconsin. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning, Travis. Gentlemen, I'm going to start today's show with a note that I just received from a listener. It goes like this. Hi, Travis. I'm a former bird hunter that had a great time chasing birds around Minnesota, South Dakota, and Iowa. I lost my sight and I cannot hunt anymore, but your podcasts make it so nice to just hear all the great things your group of hunting friends do from the dog training to the first pheasant and the places you go. So thank you for a great way for a blind bird hunter to remember the flush and the feel of a cold morning in the woods. The best of luck for the rest of your season. Jeff Kuhn. Jeff, um, my heart breaks for you that you cannot see the wonders of our wild world and continue to hunt. And while I'm glad that we can share stories from the hunt, there's nothing that I can say or any of us here can say that replaces what it's really like to see and experience that hunt firsthand. So my prayers for a miraculous healing are with you. And I know that miraculous healing can happen because last week I 
nearly lost sight in one of my eyes. So we were filming a new ice fishing show that our company is producing called Dialed In Angling. We were in northern Minnesota, and I had a fish on. And like I've done thousands of times before, thousands, I don't even know how many times, I kneel down by the hole as the fish is coming up through the ice. It's an eight-inch hole for you Southerners that don't know what ice fishing is like. And you have about a 30-inch rod, and in one hand, I've got the rod bent in half, and I'm lifting the fish up. And in the other, I'm kneeling down to go grab that fish out of the hole. And typically, you lift with one hand, and you grab with the other. And this time, while I was going to grab that fish, the hook popped out. And before I even knew what happened, the hook, like a slingshot, stuck right in the center of my eyeball. Oh, and oh God. It was, we were all in complete shock. I have been fishing my entire life, guys. And I have never seen this happen before. So we are about a mile into the woods on a lake that we it took us about an hour to get to we are maybe an hour and a half from a hospital and there's four of us on the ice the two others that we're filming with and the cameraman and i don't know that panic set in but it got very serious i couldn't see out of my left eye the hook was lodged into it. Um, it sounds gruesome, and it really was. Like, it was really scary. I I looked over at one of the guys, and I said, is it in my eyebrow? And his name was Pat, and he said, no. I said, where is it? And he said, it's in your eye. And it's hard to tell because typically when something happens to you, you look at it, right? You have the ability to look at it. And to see, like, okay, what happened? Where is it? And you just don't think about your eyes, right? You just, it just doesn't typically cross your mind. But I couldn't see because it was in my eye. So I grabbed my phone and I took a video and I, and I looked at it so I could see with my other eye where it was and try to figure out what we're going to do. And fortunately, Pat, who was standing next to me, stayed calm. And I just, he and I, and I looked at him and I said, is it past the barb? And the other guy, he goes, uh, Tony, the other host of the show with me, he, I'm not saying he was panicking, but he was starting in his mind thinking, okay, how are we getting out of here? What's our next steps? Everything got real serious real quick. And um, Pat knelt down next to me. We're both kneeling on the ice. And I couldn't move my eye because if I turned in any direction, the hook would move with it. And it was very uncomfortable. If I would blink, um, it would move the hook in the eye. And I was so afraid of causing any further damage. But I couldn't see out of it because it was where the hook was and how much water was coming down. You know, your eye just watering. And think of it like the worst stick you've ever had. Um, hit you in the eye or something, you know, like you just can't see for a little bit. So that's where I was. And he calmly, Pat knelt next to me, 
put two fingers holding my eyelids up and down so I couldn't blink. And he looked at it. And without saying anything, he calmly and ever so gently slid the hook back out. And in that moment, I blinked. And in the most blurry, tear-dripping eye, I could see again. Very um, scary, but um, very hard to see. But I, I wasn't blacked out anymore. And I gave him the biggest hug. And we just held each other out in the middle of that lake for like 30 seconds. Because I think we both realized how scared we were at that moment. And it was in that moment that I just, I just didn't have anything to say. Neither of us did. We didn't know what to say. And the thoughts that came through my mind about how serious this got so quickly um, in literally the blink of an eye. Um, that I might not be able to see anymore out of my left eye. So what happened was this hook um, went through the lenses, the outer lenses of your cornea. Uh, the eye specialists have been trying to explain to me um, what what happened. But um, essentially, it cut my lens into two. So I then immediately, wherever I looked with my left eye was blurry and cloudy and I was seeing two of everything and that's a scary thing because I don't know if it's going to heal it took about four hours for us to get out of the woods and to a doctor an eye specialist that could see me and when he put me underneath the um, the microscope and he's looking at my eye the first thing he said was this is fascinating and I'm like what does that even mean like you know, one, I, here I can start to see again, right? So I'm in my mind, I'm like, I'm feeling optimistic that um, this is going to heal. This is like a bad sick in the eye that a lot of bird hunters have probably experienced. Um, but he freaked me out because he's like, you need to, you need to get into a specialist right away. And this was at seven o'clock at night and I'm in now in Brainerd, Minnesota, and he recommended a specialist down in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis. And um, so he's now concerned about my vision. And I still see double. Uh, it's a blurry double at that. I've always had 20-20 vision. And now I can't see basically much out of my left eye. And so now he's got me scared. He put me on antibiotics. And um, the next day, they... They forced uh, an opening into their schedule because this doctor in Brainerd said that I can't wait uh, an extra day, so they need to get me in. And his level of panic caused me a level of panic, (laughs) if I'm being honest. And uh, I just asked my friends um, if they, you know, I told them what happened and my family, and they all started praying. And I just, I just felt like I'm going to heal from this. And he, he said that he thinks I'll have a permanent scar and that scar could cause uh, long-term vision. Uh, the next day I went into the doctor and received a similar prognosis. Um, so that was now, let's see, what are we here? Tuesday morning. So it was a week ago yesterday, or a week ago today. So I'm now seven days from when this originally happened. And um, I have an appointment to go back tomorrow. And the doctor, when I left, the specialist, 
explained that I may have a wave in my eye, so it may cause vision uh, a difficulty or a scar or something. But I'm looking through it today. I'm just looking right now, and I can read size 11 font on my computer with my left eye. And um, I can't tell you how grateful I am right now that I can see out of not only one eye, but both eyes. Because for a minute there, I didn't know that I would be able to see out of my left eye again because I couldn't. And I've never really thought about it. You know, like how, guys, how, how often do you think about your eyesight? You just open them up and you look and you see the world, right? Oh, yeah. I I have terrible eyes, so I think about it constantly. Really? My eyes are, yeah, oh, my eyes are absolutely bad. And one time several years ago, I was worried about losing it when I had a tumor behind my left eye as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a blessing to be able to to have full eyesight. What was that like when you had that tumor? Oh, it was, I mean, you know, as, as anything goes, it was scary because it was in between my eye and my brain, but... You know, we got amazing doctors with amazing skills and I'm mm. tumor free. So, yeah. Oh, man. I'm, I I just I, since this has happened, I mean, people have been uh, that and I haven't like put it on social media or anything like that for people to comment. But uh, this is the first time I'm talking about it, actually. But between my friends and family and then, you know, some of the stories from other people that have told me about their experiences how quickly something like this can happen and how um, how unbelievable our bodies are at healing it blows my mind absolutely I mean, i'm i'm super i'm so happy to hear that uh, that your vision today is that much better than it was a day or two ago too so i'm really every, happy to hear that for you yeah thank you every day has been better and better and better the first probably 4 days um, the second day was unbelievable in how uncomfortable it was, how sensitive my eye was to light. Um, I got this patch that I wear at night so I don't accidentally touch it. And I'm still on drops, antibiotic drops. Um, but uh, just like how that light would penetrate through my head. Like I, it was painful in the back of my head because of the light brightness. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't very sunny and we haven't had snow because those two things, I might not have been able to go outside. I, cl I closed the shades in my house. My wife did the next day. I wore sunglasses inside the house um, just because the the sensitivity to the light. That and you're cool. And yeah. Oh, you're yeah. The cool totally. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but today on the drive in this morning. And I just thought about it again, how grateful I am that I have both my eyes I can see and the sun was shining and I didn't have to wear sunglasses and I felt normal. Like I felt, I feel normal. Now it's still a little blur and I can maybe see what the doctor is saying about the wave. But if this is where I am the rest of my life, th there's a chance they could put a corrective lens over it to take that out or glasses. Um, you know, so... <sighs> I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, like, what did I learn here? Where, what can we take from this? You know, I'm always, I'm always trying to think through, like, you know, I think the biggest thing is, like, the reality of how quickly accidents can happen. Yes. 
you know, and if you're listening to this, you're a hunter and you're, you're going to be a long ways away from a hospital, most likely doing the activity that you love to do the most. And you can't just, you just can't prepare for every single accident that can happen. Like it could happen to your dog. It could happen to you. It could happen to somebody next to you. But I look back at, um, you know, Pat being willing to slide that hook out of my eyeball and how much damage could have happened in the hours of like, it was so uncomfortable to blink, to move my eyeball and look left, right, up or down that walking a mile through the woods and then getting to the, like, I don't know how much damage would have been caused by that hook bouncing, moving, but he calmly took it out. And then I asked him like, you know, and he's like, I just thank God that he gave me a calm hand to be able to do that. You know, like I, he, he probably doesn't know why he was calm or how, or, you know, like, I don't know, but just the value of being a calm presence in a scary situation for somebody else, if it ever happens, a positive, because the mental side of a scary accident, if everyone else is panicking around you, what are you going to do? You're probably going to pan. You're going to panic too. Like if it's that bad and everyone else thinks it's that bad, you're probably going to join the, the panic. But if everyone else stays calm, if, if somehow you can say, Hey, it's not going to be that bad. We're going to get you out of here. Or this is going to be okay. All of a sudden you carry that same mentality too. You know, like I, I really think there's something to be said about that positive attitude. Like, it's it's something I've seen in other accidents in the field, and somehow I've been able to stay, I think, calm and helpful during crazy chaos um, that maybe that's something to take away from this. But also, you know, I wear sunglasses when I fish for that exact reason, because 15, 17 years ago, something like that, I had a hook bounce off my sunglasses and stick a treble hook right in my eyebrow from somebody else that was casting. And I just was like, I, I feel because he would have literally hooked my eyeball. And then when he went to cast, that's when it hooked on my eyebrow and he broke his line on it when he did that. That would have been my eyeball ripping out of my head. Like I can't even imagine how, how awful that would have been. And I vowed that I would always wear sunglasses from that moment on because I've been a fishing guide for over 20 years. I've taken hundreds and hundreds of people fishing and how many days on the water, I can't even count. But I did not have them on a week ago because I have lost hearing for a whole other thing that I've talked about a lot, a lot of times on this show, right? So I have hearing aids in. And when I'm filming, I need to be able to hear the people I'm communicating with. And then if I have sunglasses that wrap around my ears and I have stocking hat over that in the wind noise and all these other things, so I chose not to wear the sunglasses. Wow, what a mistake. You know, just like I could go back and just put on my sunglasses and I wouldn't even be having this conversation today. But hopefully, because I am having it, maybe it makes you think about some of these things that can happen or just really treasure what you have. Well, and it really makes you want to reiterate going over your safety checks, whether it's your hunting, ice fishing, regular fishing, whatever it is. Make sure you have, you know, your your first aid kit with. Make sure you have your supplies with. Make sure you know where the nearest hospital is. Make sure you know where, 
you know, where you can get help if you need help, that sort of a thing. Make sure you, you have your safety glasses on before you do something, that sort of a thing. And I'm the worst at wearing safety glasses, Brandon. Like I have been called out by viewers on our TV show plenty for not wearing them while grouse hunting because there's probably nowhere worse than in the grouse woods to being slapped in the eye by a stick. And I've had it so many times and they're right. Like they wear the sun. But here's where I struggle with that because um, if I have hearing protection in or whatever it might be, but really for me, I... I don't know what it is about wearing glasses in the woods, but I just like they fog up um, and then I can't see very well and I just end up taking them off. And now I'm just like, I'm done with that. I have to just keep them on. I just have to. They have to be clear. If there's scratches, I'm just going to throw them away. Maybe I'll buy like a case of clear glasses i don't know but i get some get some anti-fog wipes to put on them all that sort of thing is that a thing yes it is well i sweat like a sweat (laughs) hog out there in the woods and i'm just like instantly everything's fogged up and i can't see and i'm like how does everyone else do it i have (laughs) i have a lot to learn boys a lot to learn and i'm hey i'm here to admit that i have a lot to learn and i i'm open to talking about that so you wear glasses trevor I used to, but the reason why I quit wearing them is because they always fogged up, and now it makes me think twice, and I feel like I should start wearing them again, gross hunting. I tend to push it off, but when you hear stories like this, it really makes you reconsider your thoughts on safety. It's so weird because, like, I know there are thousands of people going ice fishing this weekend and this year and everyone leans over the hole to grab the fish you know and everyone else that i've told the story they're like i can't even tell you how many times a hook has popped out and bounced off my chest or whatever but it's like holy crap you know probably would have passed out (laughs) i've shown so i have it on video (laughs) because i obviously i have this video that i took so i could see where the hook was stuck in my own eye um And I've shown quite a few people that are either interested and most of them like turn away or they cringe or they're like, they, it's, yeah, my wife still hasn't watched it. She may never. Um, And I don't blame her. Maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll post it on social media so people can see it. And maybe that'll be an eye opener to protect yourself. Right. right. <laughs> hey, that's that that uh, that good social media viral video you need to promote the show, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't. It's gross. Uh, anyway, okay. So that took a little bit longer than I was thinking. Um, but it's, you know, like the listener Jeff. You know, um, I just pray for you. You know, because I can't imagine what it's like to not be able to do what we take for granted and do. I just can't, you know, and on our show this week um, was a story about Brit on our television episode that's airing this week or this past week. Um, Brit has ALS and he's a big six, four strong marathon runner, bird hunter that would climb up and down a mountain and his strength is gone. And, you know, he, he lost something that we, you and I, all of us here right now still have. And I just can't wrap my head around that. 
And so maybe it's just a call for us to really appreciate what we do have. And I, I think that's, that's, it's so important for us to just appreciate, right? Just not take anything for granted. I know. And it's, it's so cliche to say that, but just, just to stop and look around wherever you are listening right now, look around and realize that this can change tomorrow. So what are you going to do today? If you're looking for an awesome bird hunting adventure, then now is a great time to head to the state of North Dakota. Why? Well, this year, the state of North Dakota has reported that pheasant counts are up 61% from last year. The sharp-tailed grouse numbers are up 116%. And get this, the Hungarian partridge numbers have tied an all-time high that comes in at 200% above last year. I've already hunted in North Dakota this season, and I've seen these bird numbers for myself. Water levels are also up, which means the total number of wetlands are up. 76% above the long-term average. The state's breeding duck index was the 23rd highest on record this year. 39% above the long-term average at 3.4 million. All of these numbers mean that there are more ducks, more geese, pheasants, sharpies, and Hungarian partridge on the landscape. In North Dakota, you can experience an epic waterfall hunter in the peak of the fall migration and have the best upland hunt of your life all in the same day. I know this because I've done it myself. Start planning your world-class hunt in North Dakota at hellond.com. If you're an active outdoorsman or woman on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Well, our friends at Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for all of your hauling needs, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma Trailers tow gear like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day, and now that app is available in our vehicles. Yep, Onyx did it. They launched Apple CarPlay. That means when you plug your phone into your vehicle, you now have the option to open up the Onyx app right on the dash of your hunting rig. No more holding your phone while driving, which is obviously dangerous, and you get all of the same layers on your vehicle dash that you get on your phone. You can see the aerial view of your location while driving down the road, just like you'd see if you're using your own maps, apps, Waze, or Google Maps. Except now you can find out if the properties around you are open to the public, the landowner's name that owns the land. And if you're in North Dakota, you can see if that land is posted without even touching your phone. To use this feature, simply make sure your Onyx app is up to date. And if you're not an iPhone user, don't worry. Onyx is currently working on the same platform for Android phones too. Apple CarPlay, the latest incredible feature from Onyx Hunt. Always know where you stand and now where you drive with Onyx Hunt. Um, Trevor, congratulations on your marriage. Well, thank you. When did you guys get married? So we got, it was about the worst timing possible. We decided to get married on Grouse Opener in Wisconsin. Ooh. So, and people actually came to your wedding? <laughs> yes, they did, actually. Um, <laughs> 
Well, we had we booked it out. We booked the the venue, and we had two dates to pick from. And it was the 16th of September, or it was the 23rd, and that was two years out when we booked it. So I figured oh, I'd rather do it when the leaves are 100 percent on the trees. So, well, typically I would. I would scold you and say, you do realize that even though your wedding only comes around once, your anniversary comes every year at that exact same time, which means you're going to be celebrating that during one of your favorite times of the year, which is grouse opener. But in your case, your wife is most likely, yeah, your wife is most likely going to be celebrating with you in the grouse woods because... Somehow you lucked out, my man, and your wife loves hunting just like you do. It definitely comes with a lot of struggles, though. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm guessing she might listen to this, but go on. What are the struggles? So I'm uh, when it comes to grouse hunting, she's not as dedicated as I am. And if the dog's on point in the thickest of the thickest, she tends to get kind of burnt out and... There's just struggles because I want her to get a shot and I try to get her up and we try to work around the cover correctly. And Mm -hmm. she tends to get a little frustrated when she's getting smacked in the face by all the trees. So there's some struggles between that. But Well, you have uh, a lifetime to learn with your wife and I I know that you will. Uh, But hey, she's out there with you. I mean, that in itself is something that a lot of marriages don't have. And gosh, it's such a cool thing that you guys do have that. And you guys have made this this life um, outdoors a priority. And let's go back to when we met. Uh, do you remember where it was? Pheasant Fest. Yes, yeah. in Omaha, I believe. Was it the year in yep. Omaha a couple years ago? Yep. Okay, yep. so we had a live podcast and... I think you guys were engaged at this time, but do you remember the question you asked when you came to the open mic? Um, you might have to refresh my memory. Well, I remember it. You, the question was, we are planning a honeymoon and we want to go hunting. If you could hunt anywhere, where would you go and why? And you asked both uh, Tyler Webster and I, and I think we both said Idaho. At least that's what I said. Tyler and said Arizona. Tyler said Arizona, yep. and I said Idaho. Yep. Well, obviously, you were smart enough to listen to me, right? <laughs> you, you made a good choice, a very good choice. Yes. I'm um, grateful for that. Well, okay. So before we get into the honeymoon hunt itself, um, I just want to, I mentioned this at the start of the show. I've kind of sort of watched your journey a little bit over the last couple of years. You've now added more dogs to your pack. You and I were at a dog training seminar together this summer. You've gone through a lot and you've learned a lot. So we'll go through, we'll break some of that stuff down on the training and and what you and your wife have done and the honeymoon hunt itself. But um, how, how did you get into upland hunting in the first place? So when I was 15 years old, um, my dad, he used to bird hunt when, before we were born, he had a Springer Spaniel. So he did a lot of grouse and woodcock hunting. And then when we were born, he kind of phased away from it. When we were 15, I had a friend of mine, his grandpa had this one-year-old German short hair. He was a nutcase. Just leave it at that, I guess. (laughs) 
Well, I persuaded my dad. I talked and I begged and I said, I'll feed him. I'll, I'll take care of him if we can get this dog. Well, my dad, I convinced my dad. So we got this short hair. He's about a year old. And we basically didn't know nothing about pointing dogs, didn't know nothing about training dogs, nothing like that. So we just took the dog hunting, which is, I would not recommend it by any means because half the time we were chasing the dog around in the woods and it was kind of a nightmare. Well, then when I was 16 years old, I was invited out to South Dakota for the first time with a friend of mine. So we took my dog out there and I was hooked. It was the most fun I've ever had in my life. And I was just very grateful that I was given that opportunity to take the dog that was my first dog, family dog. And it was just a trip that I could always remember. Well, then Do you, was there a moment with your dog out there that you remember that stands out from that first hunt in South Dakota? Yes, I would have to say when the first bird he actually pointed, I walked up and I flushed it and it was a rooster and I shot that bird. And I, that was when I knew I wanted to do this for as long as I can. It was, it was a memory that I can, that'll never forget. I can remember that exact flush, that exact point, the exact shot, the retrieve and everything. I remember it plain as day. Did something, did, was there like a, a light that turned on for your dog at that same time during that hunt? Or was it just the same old knucklehead? No, he was a lot more cooperative and he was very bird driven. And we definitely, I seen, he definitely put the puzzle together when I finally shot a bird pointed over him. It was, it was game on. Well, so you're 16 years old at this time, right? Is that what you just said? Yep. Yep. So how how did the rest of your journey with that dog go? It went very well. We made we made annual trips. Then my dad, I talked him into going out of state because he never left the state to do any hunting trips. And I persuaded him the following year to go to South Dakota again. And then, yeah, he it was a great journey. We just actually just put him down last year. Mm. So that was really hard being he was my first dog. And we've grouse hunted every chance we could. We'd leave after school. I'd throw him in the truck and we'd go for a little walk in the woods. And he, he taught me everything. He he was one of them dogs that he's the one that started it all. What was his name? Deuce. What is it? Deuce. Deuce. Oh, that's a yep. perfect name. That is a perfect name. Um, yes. so white short, where, hair. so you grew up in Wisconsin, right? Yep. Northern Wisconsin. And where do you live now? In Medford, Wisconsin. It's near about an hour from Wausau, Wisconsin. That's a bigger town. So what kind of hunting do you have near you? Grouse and woodcock. And I uh, I'm guessing you got out a lot this fall. Yes. Yes. Why? Well, I was fortunate enough. Me and my wife bought this place two weeks before our wedding and I live about three miles from the Schwamigan National Forest, which that's not hot spotting because it's a million acres. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're, yep. very, we're very yep. fortunate that we can, if we come home from work, we can throw the dogs in the truck and just drive three miles on the road and we're on public land. So we spend the majority of our September and October in 
the grouse woods and then i took a trip out to north dakota and we hunted sharp tails huns and then some pheasants and that was that was good north dakota's has a special place in my heart and i think if i could live anywhere that's where i'd move amen i know every time i go out there i get that much closer to like I've looked and I've said this, you've, if you've listened to the show, you've heard me talk about looking at real estate out there because I'm, yeah. I'm that serious well, about it. I mean, it's hard to come back from that. It's just, uh, I don't know, hunting and fishing, man. If you want it, it's it's really good in North Dakota. I'd have to be a snowbird, though, I think, if I lived out there with the winds and the snow. But A lot of people are. Yes, this time of the year, it can be challenging to track down landowners. Once the harvest is over, a lot of them heads out i mean it's just they they're enjoying 80 degree sunshine in arizona right now or florida um and so trying to knock on their door and get permission isn't the easiest thing to do this time of the year but um let's get back to your your story uh you and carissa did she grow up or hunting so she grew up deer hunting and she had nothing to do with bird hunting and uh she ended up buying this german short hair just off off of facebook or whatever he had he had no breeding or nothing like that he was just kind of she bought him because she thought he was a cool dog before you guys were together yes yep and she actually worked for a dog trainer here over by bloomer wisconsin and she cleaned kennels and did a little bit of training with him and she ended up taking that dog to the trainer she worked for and they did bird intro and gun intro and everything like that. And she had high intentions that she was going to get into it. Well, she just never did until she met me. And then we basically took the reins in our hand and we started getting pigeons and we did a bunch of bird work with that short hair and she did all the obedience training. So he was, had all the foundation so we just basically took him hunting and did a bunch of training with him. I've, I would imagine then your guys's marriage and your relationship really kind of strengthened by this activity. You, you both found um, a lot of joy in doing working with the dogs together, but man, working with dogs is stressful sometimes. I mean, it can be challenging and there's a lot to learn. So going through it together, how did that help your guys's relationship? I or think hurt it helped. It. <laughs> did it help or did it hurt? <laughs> well, it 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 definitely it definitely strengthened our relationship, I would say. We did have our own struggles, of course, because she worked for the dog trainer and she helped him out with foundation and all that. And I'm kind of a stubborn person. So <laughs> me trying to learn from my spouse, girlfriend at the time, was quite challenging. Well, did you have to suck up your pride a little bit then? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I kind of had, uh, I don't know, I guess it was just very challenging just being that I was taking advice from her when I've been doing this since I was 15 years old. So, and I didn't know, of course, I'm always, I always want to learn things, but coming from your girlfriend, it's <laughs> a little, it's a little different. <laughs> Well, and certainly what she learns coming from you is probably different than if she would have told the same thing from this professional dog trainer, you know, sure. and, sure. you know, like I've talked about it on this show plenty. When I go and shoot clay pigeons with my wife and we bring another couple with and 
women love to shoot. Women love shooting shotguns. There's some power there. And like, I don't know how to describe it. And every woman that has pulled up the shotgun and fired and busted a clay in the air, there's like this like badassness, you know? Um, But sometimes me stepping in and helping them get comfortable with the shotgun and how to look and, you know, shoulder it and things like that is received differently than if their husband or their boyfriend were telling them. So um, something to think about anyway, when you're introducing new people or you're doing these kind of experiences with husband and wives, it's a different voice being received differently than if it were coming from you, which obviously you experience with your wife, but or now now wife, um, Trevor, but like, what did, what was your main takeaway that if you look back on what she taught you while you were learning alongside of her training these new dogs of yours? I am beyond blessed. I really am. Because we, we went to some seminars that that dog trainer held and I, I learned so much from her and this new cider pup that we have. She did the majority of all the obedience training on him and she's been teaching me how to do everything. And then we attended that, the method seminar and that was it was awesome. And I, and I'm very grateful that I've, that I can learn from her and from all these people. There's so much information out there that mm-hmm. helped. Yeah. That's where you and I touched base again this summer when we were out at Sunny Picar's place in Wisconsin. Um, you and Krista came out and I got to see your new setter pup. And um, what are some of the uh, biggest takeaways that you took from that seminar that you both were able to just sit and absorb like I was. I mean, I was a sponge that day out there, just listening and observing and watching. Was there anything that stood out to you different than some of the other trainers that you had already learned from? I would say just letting the dog, like setting the dog up for success. But if you're going to fail, we're going to keep trying. We're not going to force the dog to do anything. It's if you want to do it and you want to fail, we're just going to keep doing this. And it wasn't like a forceful training. And the obstacle course just blew my mind. I just, that was definitely something that I never even heard of. And it was, mm-hmm. I, what, what's oh, that? Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I saw the next, like three days after the seminar, you posted on your Instagram page, your own obstacle course that you built in your yard. <laughs> and- yep. I built one that I started building it the day I got home. <laughs> oh gosh well watching that do you remember that big um uh what was the dog that um jordan used as the example on the obstacle course uh do you remember the breed of that poodle. dog it was a poodle pointer or a, i think it was a poodle pointer yeah a, and it was i think it was like a five-year-old dog maybe six years yes. old something like that and that was an eye-opener because the dog had pushed back in every way possible. And then when it finally, he just kept giving it the opportunity, kept giving it the opportunity to go up the um, the teeter-totter. And all of a sudden, it goes up on the teeter-totter. And it was just like, that dog went from being, pushing back against everything that anybody was trying to do with it and for it and to teach, to all of a sudden being like, I'm up for anything. You know, and it was like the goosebumps. I can't even describe it just to see this unruly dog jumping and barking and, you know, like 
not being a part of the pack, not listening to anything, caring about nothing that anyone had to say to standing there at heel and going and doing everything as if this dog had been trained for one of those dog shows, the Westminster, you know, like just, it was so amazing to see the light switch turn on for this dog that a lot of people would said, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, you know? <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, you yep. can. His yeah, confidence you can. went through the roof after just going over the teeter-totter. Like his confidence was so much stronger than when he came. Yeah. It was a totally different dog by the end of that day. Right. So for you, you have a, a puppy, a setter puppy. Um, yep. You and Chris are, are training now. So I, you said you have what, three dogs now? Yes, I have a seven-year-old short hair and then a five-year-old short hair. And then this setter, he's about a year and a few months. Okay. Gotcha. So what has it been like now having all these tools at your disposal that you've learned from Carissa, from her trainer, from going to the method seminar, from Sunny P cars and, and Jordan and George Lyle. I mean, like, what has it been like for you to, to teach and train this puppy compared to how, what, how it went the first couple of times? It is, it makes it so much easier. It, I, I think people make it more difficult than what it has to be. They just need to get help and just try to learn and just be a sponge like you said before because that's all we that's all i did that whole seminar i was just in complete awe i just soaked up every little bit of information i possibly could and it just makes sense and it makes the, the dog just understands everything so much easier when you're clear on what you're asking it really benefits the training sure do you feel like you're you have a lot more confidence now too i mean through the experiences that you've gone through Yes, I definitely have more confidence, but I obviously have a bunch more I would like to learn. I'd like to go to Sonny's and just just clean kennels or watch them for a day and, or two and just soak up more information. My mm -hmm. confidence went up a lot, but it definitely I could use some more information. The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way Upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control FlexWad technology and a mix of copper-plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. Now is a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning, or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it. Walton's has you covered. Walton's has everything but the meat. That's their motto. Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat. Plus, they have an online community called Meatgistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information. The sky's the limit, my friends. You don't have to be a pro to cook like one. Head to Waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season. Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. A healthy dog is a happy dog, and a dog's optimal health ultimately starts with an optimal diet. That's why I trust Nutrisource Performance Dog Food to keep Daisy healthy 
and running to her full potential. Nutrisource now has a full circle feeding plan that can help your dog achieve their full potential too. The full circle feeding plan revolves around their entire lineup of Nutrisource dog foods that contain their good for life system. The Nutrisource good for life system is packed with probiotics, prebiotics, and proprietary minerals that work together to support your dog's heart health and gut health. By combining this system and all of their dry foods and wet foods, you can rotate carbs and proteins like chicken, beef, fish, and lamb to meet and exceed your dog's needs and accelerate their natural desire to eat. Plus, their toppers like kombucha add even more health benefits for our dogs. Learn more about Nutrisource dog foods and the benefits of their full circle feeding plans at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Well, um, let's get back to you and your wife here. And now you got married and it's blissful. No, no issues ever in marriage, right? It's clear communication yeah. all the time. <laughs> so yep, yep. you're like just, that. you're just in paradise, right? Um, right, right. How did you plan your honeymoon and where did you end up going and why? So we ended up picking Idaho because we went to that Pheasant Fest in Omaha and we had the decision between Idaho and Arizona. Well, we decided from the pictures and all the research we did that Idaho was the place that we wanted to go. And it was about a 24-hour drive. So we had to really plan on how many days we were going to be there and how long we wanted to take the drive. So we definitely had to do a lot of research on where to go and what to even look for because it is quite intimidating going 24 hours across the country to go hunt some upland birds. Um, I was and I talked to Ryan Newmarker quite a bit. We talked on the phone a few times and he helped guide me quite a bit on where to even start along with you. You help us out significantly on just where to start on the journey. But you didn't hire anybody. You just went out there knowing that it was going to be an adventure. Is that right? Or did you have anybody there that you met up with? Nope. We basically just went on Onyx. I did a lot of scouting at home. And then we basically just drove the 24 hours and started checking out BLM land. And we put boots on the ground and we just figured it out on our own. So did you have any goals personally before you left? your home in Wisconsin. And how about Carissa? What were her goals? We both wanted to be able to bag a trucker and a valley quail and just have fun and just be out there and just experience the new landscape and just be out there and do something that we probably won't be able to do every year. So we, our expectations were not very high just because we're unfamiliar with the landscape and everything like that. Did you accomplish your goals? Not quite. We did 50-50. We killed some valley quail, but we were we had no luck on the chucker. We huh. we tried. We it's it's quite difficult. I noticed in Idaho trying to find roads to access certain properties and we spent a lot of time driving around and trying to scout and find the right places so we didn't get just burn ourselves out in the dogs. Because mm -hmm. as soon as we put boots on the ground for the trucker, we climbed one rolling hill. To me, it looked like a mountain. Got to the top thinking we could just walk the tops of it and let the dogs run the edges. And we had to go straight back down and straight back up. And we didn't have any success with the trucker. Did you see any? 
No, we did not actually. Uh. We we tried and we we only we only initially planned on hunting for three days, being we had about five days of driving. So we only mm-hmm. planned on doing three days. And we ended up going the the following day after the third day of hunting and we ended up going and buying another license and hunting that last day for quail strictly for quail so we basically hunted valley quail three of the four days we tried hunting chucker the one day and then we did a little bit more scouting for chucker the second day and we didn't have any luck with the chucker but we put the dogs on the ground on one chunk of property for valley quail and we found eight cubbies of quail oh wow there is so, plenty I'll keep more. going there's plenty i mean i i if i can give any advice to anybody just go out and do it because as soon as you find we found the certain found agriculture or a drainage or anything with running water and trees there was quail i mean it was it was a very easy pattern to follow and anything with sagebrush bordering a creek or anything like that. And I just highly recommend if you're going to do a trip like that, just do it. Don't, don't push it off. Don't wait to do a guided hunt. Just try to figure it out on your own because it's that much more rewarding. Yeah, totally. I mean, you just said it all right there. I was going to, that was my question. Um, this is a realistic trip that people can do on their own. So based on what you guys experienced, you know, like what were your biggest takeaways that might be real tangible items for somebody listening right now to say like, okay, yep. That makes sense to me. That's what I would, that's what I wanted to hear. Like, what did you learn out there that you really took away from this hunt? I would have to say the biggest thing that we learned was not just picking a property and going, make sure it had every single checklist of what you think there will be quail in it i would instead of just wasting dog power and wasting your your own energy just find that exact piece of cover and just go for it and it there's me and my wife we always do diy hunts we don't that's that's our thing we just go and figure it out and it's just that much more rewarding when you do have a bird in hand and when we where we were at in idaho i there wasn't a single property that we walked that we didn't find any quail. So it was pretty easy to pattern, but the first covey of quail we did find, we didn't really understand why they were there. So we didn't know if it was just a coincidence that they were there at that time. So I guess the advice that I would really give is just put a dart on the map and just go and just scout, give yourself a couple of days to just scout it out and just drive around on the gravel roads and, figure out a game plan. And I, I just think you just have to do it. Well, I, I, I know from my own experience, all the hype, all the excitement, the anticipation of getting there, you finally get there and it's like, okay, let's just get out boots on the ground. Let's start hunting. But <laughs> the value of just like, okay, take a step back here. Let's drive around a little bit. Let's analyze this landscape. It's different than what I'm used to. What's different about it. Where could these birds be? Um, you know, that extra time, scouting is really valuable so you don't burn yourself out because all of a sudden you get out there and you start walking and you're three miles from the truck and you're like crap this is actually where i don't want to be and here's why x y and z i need to be four miles that way or you know like there's things that you learn when you go to a new landscape and you hunt for birds that you've never hunted before um which is why i think it's so cool that you guys decided to do this i mean um you know the landscape and the birds are different than wisconsin 
by a lot, (laughs) you know? So what are, what were some highlights though? I mean, that first covey that got up when you put a bird in hand, did you get any birds out of the first covey, by the way? I didn't even shoot. (laughs) (laughs) I was just, I was just memorized. I'm like, Oh my God, what, what just happened? (laughs) I hit the dog, the dogs got birdie and the young cider pup locked on point and the birds got up and I just, I, I just froze. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is awesome. Are these quail? Like I, like I, it was just beyond just amazing experience. It really was. What did, what did Carissa say about it when the first uh, Covey rose? Uh, well, we hunted, we hunted Huns and Sharptails in North Dakota. So we weren't oblivious to how, how Covey birds work, mm-hmm. but she was just memorized. Like, this is, this is awesome. Like we're used to grouse hunting and the only thing you do is you hear the grouse you don't get to see it and mm-hmm. here we see 10 little rockets flying all over in every which direction and you don't even know like oh shoot i didn't even realize that i should have shot there and they're already 50 yards out the little rockets is what they are right but we were just just so fortunate to be able to experience that because it was just mind-blowing how fast some little things are yeah. Um, as you went along um, and started finding those birds, um, did you guys find your own rhythm out there? Yes. Yes, we did. I, it didn't, after the first walk and we found the first puppy of quail, it was pretty easy to put the puzzle together. And really, we, we, we hunt enough together where when the dog goes on point, we know exactly which way to walk and how to work together, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you celebrate that success? You and your wife out there, um, together. I mean, it's gotta be pretty cool to watch her out there walking the side of a Canyon, you know, with a shotgun in hand, going up to her dog on point. I mean, it's for you just to sit back and watch her do her thing. Is that this, I mean, can you describe that? Wow. It's pretty badass. <laughs> there you go. It really, it really is. She, she, she definitely knows how to, how to put boots on the ground. And she's, she's a diehard. Um, and it's very, it just makes my, my heart melt a little bit when I see her and shoot her first quail. She's just the excitement on her face. And we run up to each other and give each other a big hug. And just, we're so supportive. If you miss one, hey, you know, there's always another one. Or you shoot this one. And there's just so much so much uh love for it together it's truly amazing oh gosh i love it i love it so much i just got goosebumps uh what was her biggest takeaway what was her highlight you had another 24 hours in the vehicle to hear about it and replay everything on the way home so what what did she feel like um was her i mean i you and i talked beforehand about having her on the show and she's was a little nervous. So we said, let's you and I have the conversation. I would have asked her, Carissa, what was your highlight from the honeymoon hunt? What would she have said? I think she would have had to say when she shot a double on quail. I think that was probably one of the most highlights for her and just the landscape. She just, it was beautiful and she's big into the photography. So she had so much fun just with the scenery and taking photos. And she just, I think, it was just a beautiful place to go. And I think her highlight was just being out in the landscape that we were in and shooting that double. I would have to say was her favorite part. <laughs> I don't think you would have 
gone wrong going to Arizona because it's beautiful there as well. But for me, when you ask the question about going on a honeymoon hunt together, I said Idaho for that exact reason, because you have a variety of birds. That's amazing that you have that option. Um, but <clears throat> you could climb the mountain to the top and have a chance of finding birds. You could hike the valley down below and find birds of a different species. But the beauty of that place and that landscape, man, it's hard to describe it until you're in it. I bet she probably struggled to find just, you know, like when you point the camera, it it captures, you know, this rectangle, right? In front yep. of you. But it's so vast when you're out there that it's all around you. And that's what's hard to really grasp until you're standing in it. And then you watch your dogs running in it. And then they go on point on the side of a canyon and you get to just pause for that moment and look at it and be like, I never want to leave this. I just want this to sear into my brain. And then, the, you know, the covey rise of those different birds that get up. Oh, I can still picture it, Trevor. I, <laughs> I can still picture it. It's been years since I've been out there. Such a cool thing. Yes. Yeah, we, we got to the first top of the hill. We just sat down. Of course, we were out of breath, but we sat down and just, this is amazing. We had to take it all in and just sit there and just watch the dog on the side of on the side of the other hill 200 yards away. And it just was something to really take in. And I, in pictures, it, looked, it does not do it justice. When you're actually on that landscape, it is the most gorgeous thing you've ever done. Yeah. Oh, and that... The, the the short golden grass on those hillsides too. Every single blade of grass is just like a, a whitish gold. And you just think, man, it's just, oh, it's stunning out there. Uh, yes. Long, long road trip back. So did you guys have a chance to like talk through it and say, this was what we maybe should have done differently. What are we going to do next? Do you have big plans now? I guess um, we, it was a trip that for us, it was something that we wanted to do with our own dogs. So we had to drive. So our takeaway from it was it's something I might not probably do again with my dogs, being it we spent over 48 hours in the pickup, let alone hunting every day, driving around. So that was kind of one of our biggest takeaways is it's something we might not do again. But we are planning on maybe thinking about Arizona one of these years and make another 20-some-hour drive the opposite way. Sure. That's kind of sure. on our scale, but I think for sure we're planning on Kansas next year for sure. So I think that's kind of what's on the horizon next year. We're going to do Kansas quail, and then I think we're going to head to North Dakota in September for Sharpies. And I really want to stick around in October and hit the grouse woods really hard this year. I did miss a week. We went out to North Dakota in October, which I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> no, you're going to stay back? Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna miss the best time of the year in the grouse woods, I don't think, next year. I I've been doing it every year. I go out to North Dakota because I have my dad likes to shoot the pheasants too. He likes to have the the whole the whole three species that we can hunt, but I think next mm -hmm. year we're just gonna target sharp tails and huns. And I'd like sure. to stick home in the best month of the year. Well, now, Trevor, this is a unique winter that we're in right now and I don't know if you've been in the grouse woods lately, but I have friends that have, and some of them are saying that right now might be the best time to be in the grouse woods. Have you been out lately? Yes, I was out the Monday 
after we got home from Idaho. And then last weekend I hunted pretty hard. And what are you I, seeing out in the woods? There's a lot of birds. They're by, by where I'm at, they get pressured a lot. So you have to head pretty far. You have to head about 40 minutes to get into some different cover, but there's birds, there's birds to be had. I mean, you, we ran the lunch. There's one 40 acre chunk that I ran on Saturday and, we found four grouse in that, and it only took probably half hour, I'd say, give or take a little bit more, 45 minutes, and we found four grouse. I mean, there's birds around, that's for sure. Do you have snow on the ground? We have, looking out the window right now, we have about an inch, just enough okay. to cover the grass. So how did that change your grouse hunt then in the woods? Well, it was snowing when I was out, so I was kind of targeting conifer trees something with dense cover mm-hmm. because i know the grouse they don't like even when it's raining out they tend to find them conifer trees and pretty much anywhere where you can find an edge with conifer trees we we're finding birds i mean that, it was that's where you ended up finding them yeah yep pretty much right under the conifer trees but it was snowing out so i would attribute that to it mm-hmm. yeah and yeah and it's it's interesting this year that um sometimes like last year at this time there was a foot and a half of snow in the forest and i mean your your dogs uh, might run right past a grouse that's snow roosting you know yep. and not even pick up that scent or sometimes they pick up the scent in the snow um and then out comes a, a grouse but this year you know from what i and i gosh i'm supposed to be in the grouse woods as we speak but my doctor said that i can't do anything physical no shooting a shotgun, no lifting anything more than 20 pounds. Um, I'm on a very strict, no activity um, until my next appointment tomorrow afternoon. Hopefully I get a green light that says that I can get back out and do a little hunting again. But for the recovery process to be full, I need to take it easy. But my grouse hunt for this week has been canceled and I'm devastated. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm living vicariously through all these other people. Like, tell me every detail. What are you seeing? I'm, how many, you know, where are you finding them? Because uh, I just want yeah, to be out there so bad. Yeah, there's grouse in the snow, though. Mm-hmm. Yep. And some that's something that I'm... Grouse. Oops, sorry. Go oh, ahead. Any... Yeah, was, yeah, you're right. There's something special about hunting grouse in the snow. There's something special about hunting them any time, but really it's so unique in the snow. The forests are quiet. Typically there's not that many people out there. The birds are in different places, no. but hey, putting that puzzle together is part of the fun. That's like you said, yes. your journey to Idaho that you guys experienced together was the whole experience. You you got the whole yeah. experience of learning, struggling, failing, and succeeding. Um and how rewarding is that? That's that's just like a late season hunt for pheasants. That's just like a late season hunt for rough grouse. Just the ability to go out and do it as we're uh, learning here, as we talked about at the beginning of the show. What a gift. What a gift it is. And for you, Trevor, it to is- be able to share that with your wife. Oh, man. You're blessed. You're a blessed man. I, I Any- tend to take it for granted Well, I think we all do, if we're being honest. We take a lot of things for granted, and maybe we should not do that, I think is what we're trying to say here today. And um, Trevor, any parting thoughts here as we wrap this up? Anything you want to say that your wife might might blush a little and be um, happy that she chose you to be her husband? Well, I guess she's she's a better shot than I am, so I'm sure if I said that, (laughs) quite happy. But you're quite no, a man to admit that. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, it was hard. She always shoots me at the clays course every single time. Every awesome. single time. Awesome. I would just have to say to anybody, if you're going to make a trip, just do it. Just pull up Onyx at home, do your scouting, do your research, talk to the game wardens, talk to somebody that lives out there and just say, hey, like, what kind of, what am I looking for? What kind of habitat? And just do it. Just put boots on the ground and figure it out because it'll be, it's worth it. It really is. Awesome. And hey, bring your wife, bring your girlfriend. Yeah. Yes. If you're that. if if you're a woman that loves to hunt, then your husband doesn't bring your husband, bring your boyfriend, bring some kids out there, like we talk about all the time. Because oh, to to enjoy that experience together is something powerful and life changing. We are going to be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. I am not entirely sure where I'm going to be because if the doctor gives me the green light, I intend to be somewhere in a field or in the woods hunting. And I think we're going to be filming a television show. Um, Trevor, appreciate your time today and uh, tell your wife, I say hello. And thanks for making uh, uh, the, the, or thanks for being willing to share your, your journey. I know it's personal to you and Carissa, but I think hopefully it might inspire if it's just one other person to do a hunt like that with their wife or husband, uh, then I think you and I have succeeded here today. It's doable. You just got to, you got to have the desire to go do it and then just make it happen. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. <laughs>